0: You can do this as a drinking game. So every time we drop connection, you have to take a drink, but make sure you don't need to go anywhere for the next 12 hours.
1: Recorded live.
0: Scuba Obsessed is the weekly podcast where we talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba the new news. Episode 174 is recorded live October 3rd, 2013. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. From the middle of the upper half of the upper half of the great state of Missouri, I'm Darren Gils, and I'd like to welcome my co-host for this week, Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm just fine, Darren. Thank you. Hopefully we'll hold together here. I'm from a hotel room with questionable internet. And when I say questionable, it's probably about 10 times faster than what I have at home. But it may not stay connected, so we'll we'll try and bully our way through this. Plus I'm distracted because I keep hearing people run up and down the hallway. We have a full chat room tonight. Paul, Big Stig, Roger, Dave, Mark just jumped in. And I saw we, do we, do we say who the, the special guest who joined us in the chat room is? I think we should. A Very special thank you to Steve Lewis, who's also joined us tonight. Who said we're up past his bedtime, so we'll try and find a way to keep him awake. Well, one way to keep people awake is let's just go right in, in through the news. All right. One of the benefits of being in the chat room is you get to follow along. So we'll paste these links in there. I just gotten used to two computers. I only got one here on set up. Don't have enough room on the table for two. Okay, Costa Concordia is back in the news. Now that they've righted the ship, and they're approaching the day when they'll be adding some more ballast so they can float it away. They, divers have recovered what looks to be more human remains. The agency said last week it had found the remains that had thought it thought had belonged to the last two missing uh, victims of the disaster. Other remains have also been found and currently undergoing DNA testing. They said we are waiting for the results from the analysis. So, what do we think that is? I mean, is that if is this the same extension of the ones that were missing, or do they you think we've come across somebody they didn't realize who was on the vessel? And we've lost Jim. It could be stowaways. I was just surprised that the record keeping was that good that they knew exactly everybody was on. I always thought it was a little too too tidy. That many people. Captain's mistress. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and now you got a plot for a mini series as if there isn't one already, Hey, Jim, and you're back. I'm back, so you must be on the other connection now. No, it's still that one. <laughs> well, here you have uh kayakers who rescue two scuba divers, so next time you're challenging the water with kayakers, better be nice to them. Shane McCoy and Matthew Russo, managers of La Jolla. Kayak. were in two separate kayaks about 10:15 p.m. Monday when they heard men who had been diving for lo- lobsters blow their distress whistles. McCoy said he and Russell had been laying lobster hoops at the same time. One diver began yelling for help, then flashing a light. McCoy and Russell headed to the area about 100 yards away and saw disoriented divers. It was pitch black. The men were being thrashed in the powerful surf with swells three to four feet. One had lost his fins. McCoy said he and Russell timed the wave set so they could safely reach the men in their kayaks. They tossed the rope to one of the divers and paddled back to La Jolla Cove with the divers in tow.
1: Sounds like a lack of planning on the part
0: of the divers to me. It very well could have been. They said authorities received an incomplete 911 call about the divers, apparently from someone on shore who heard a whistle. lifeguard went in the water and reached the other diver who was at Russos kayak. He pulled them in a recreational boat and then into a lifeguard boat. All
1: right. Now, wait a minute. They said it's pitch black. But yet there's lifeguards and a lifeguard boat out there. I thought lifeguards left at dark.
0: I would think so. Unless they're just they're misspeaking, maybe it was Coast Guard. I don't know. I don't know. You would think if they
1: were gonna finish their dive they'd finish it before dark. No, but lobster hunting you would generally do more lobster you're gonna find more lobsters after dark than maybe it was a sunsets type dive, but usually you'll find more bugs after dark.
0: I've never had a chance to go bug hunting like that. Something I would like to try. Yep, uh,
1: post it. Post it? On the website or on the, did you put oh. it in the chat room?
0: No, no, I I didn't. I'm bad. Here we go. Yep, they've got it. He beat me to it. You know there is a reason I sent him those show notes. Now, here's one I don't know how to take. Worthington Steel, who makes dive cylinders along with other steel products, has announced a joint venture in China. Worthing Industries announced today that's reached an agreement to, in a principle, to participate in a joint venture near Shanghai, China, to introduce cold rolled steel primarily for the automotive industry. Worthington will join Nissan Steel Company and Marbian Iktara Steel in a venture that was that will be called Zenjing Nishin Worthington Precision Specialty Steel Company Limited. God, can they? I mean, that's like a novel just the company name. Worthington will own a 10% shake, a stake, with the other two owning 55 and 35% respectively. Formal agreement expected to be signed by the end of the month. The joint venture allows for the leverage of expertise in cold-rolled strip steel.
1: With Japanese companies?
0: One's a Japanese, one's Chinese. Ah, uh, okay. I knew there had to be someone Chinese in there. Yeah. Uh, Nishin has formed in 1959 Japanese integrated steel maker specializing in light-gauge sheet products. Uh, the Chinese company was formed in 2001 as a 50-50 joint venture between Japanese general trading companies and the leading iron and steel company set up as a general producer geared in iron and steel distribution.
1: Uh, you know where those 50-50 deals work? The non-Chinese company produces, puts in all the technology and the material, and the Chinese company provides all the labor.
0: Well, they got labor. At least they do for now. But I'm not, I don't know. That 10% stake just seems a little light, kind of like uh, they were doing it as a defensive position. And like you said, uh, they're going to be putting in technology. I hope hope they get enough back out of it. Yeah. And here's what I was hoping Mac would be able to comment on. Jellyfish shut down a nuclear power plant in Sweden. He is an expert on the Swedish bikini team. <laughs> I was thinking he's expert someplace else, but we'll go with that. Marine biologists have said that a wave of jellyfish caused a Swedish nuclear plant to shut down a reactor. It's going to be more of a common occurrence. Operators at the nuclear plant in southeast Sweden had to scramble the reactor number three on Sunday after tons of jellyfish clogged the pipes that bring in cool water from into the plant's turbines. That's incorrect. Yeah, you can tell when they haven't done their stuff. But you're bringing the coolant water in, which goes through the heat exchanger's which cools water it doesn't the the cool water coming in doesn't spin the turbines. Now, they said jellyfish are not a new problem for the nuclear power plant. Last year, the California-based Diablo Canyon facility had to shut its reactors down after two gobs of sea slap salp sea salp. Is gobs a a, a turn actual member member measurement? Gobs of sea salp is that like a herd of geese or flock of geese? They said that it clogged the intake pipes in 2005. Nuclear power plants, yeah, we know about the fresh water.
1: It's a gaggle of geese. Gaggle of geese? Yeah. Why it's a gaggle of geese and a flock of ducks, I don't know.
0: It's called the equal opportunity for
1: college. It must relate
0: stuff. back to some
1: British term.
0: <laughs> British? We're going to blame the British on this one.
1: Blame the British, yeah. Or we well, Steezy's on. We could blame Canada.
0: <laughs> Canada. Blame Canada. It's in their it's in their uh, theme song, isn't it? South Park. That was South Park that did that one?
1: Yeah, South Park did Blame Canada.
0: The next one's out of the Clearwater Gazette. Gob's Bunch of Sailors. That's from Steve. Gob's a Bunch of Sailors? Okay. I'll have to ask my dad see if he buys that. Huh. I'm looking at this one. I don't even think this one's all that interesting. So I've, I've, I'll paste it into the sh- the show notes when we get to show notes. But this one's a little long-winded. I think I'm going to go buy it. I much prefer to talk about scuba diving. Now, this one's a follow-up. I don't know why I didn't have it earlier in the show. But remember that octopus incidents in uh, Puget Sound in Seattle? Yeah. Well, they've gone effective. They've now restricted hunting. The harvest of octopus will be prohibited in seven dive sites starting October 6th. A new rule that provides additional protection for the giant Pacific octopus will take effect October 6th when the recreational harvest of species will be prohibited at seven popular dive dive sites in the Puget Sound area. These dive sites include Deception Pass north of Oak Harbor, Seacrest Park Coves 1, 2, 3 near Alki Point in West Seattle, Alki Beach Junkyard in West Seattle, Three Tree Point in Burin, Redondo Beach in Des Moines, Les Davies Marine Park adjacent to the Les Davies Fishing Pier in Tacoma, and Days Island Wall in Tacoma. They said the occupant population in Puget Sound appears to be healthy, and new rules make viewing opportunities of these magnificent creatures a priority at these sites, Fish and Wildlife Division manager Craig Burley said. Puget Sound is one of the most popular dive destinations in the nation, and giant octopus are one of the main attractions. These new areas provide additional protection for the species and a greater chance for divers to see these fascinating animals. New rules take effect. Nearly a year after scuba diving, a diver provoked the public outcry after lethally harvesting a giant Pacific octopus at Seacrest Cove Number no. 2 in West Seattle. The strong negative reaction from the public and the dive community prompted the WDFD to explore regulatory options for banning the harvest of the giant Pacific octopuses. See, what, is oct- what is a cluster of octopus? It's not a gaggle. A mound. I don't know. I'm looking to
1: see if uh, the plural of octopus is octopi or octopuses.
0: Like pie, if you, you know, put a little crust in there and stuff, that'd be good. After working with a 12-member citizen advisory committee that included members of sports fishing and diving communities, the WDFD developed options earlier this year, provided a greater deg- degree of protection for the creatures in Puget Sound. The Wildlife Commission considered the options and voted to prohibit recreational harvest of species at the seven dive sites.
1: Oh, yeah, That's interesting.
0: What did you find? Did you just uh, article on...
1: Giant Pacific octopus may live for up to five years under suitable circumstances. However, reproduction is a cause of death. Males can only live for a few months after mating.
0: So pretty much like humans. No, it's not talking about marriage. Oh. (laughs) A cluster is one less than a cluster. Okay. Octopods. Octopods. Cellopods. A convention... A convention of (laughs) cellophones.
1: Okay. Octopods. See below. Octopods. We'll let Dave look this stuff up. He's always into this kind of stuff.
0: Underwater robot may be part of a a grant received for Port of Muskegon. It's here in Michigan. Muskegon County could purchase an underwater robot to search the Port of Muskegon in situations too dangerous for human divers as part of a recently received grant. Muskegon County Commissioners meeting on the County's Courts and Public Safety Committee on Tuesday, October 1st, voted to receive 372,000 grant dollar grant from the US Homeland Security Department. The grant comes with the requirement of 124,000 in local matching funds, nearly 28,000 which could come from the city of Muskegon under agreement that is signed with the county on June 25th. The gear would be a regional asset. And Muskegon County Sheriff's Department Dean Rossler said the grant would be a wide variety of equipment, including radio equipment for the Muskegon Police Department, radar units for boats, dive team equipment, radiation detection equipment, four radio computer consoles for boats, funds to pay for a deputy police dog trained to look for explosives, and an underwater robot. Rosler said the law enforcement agencies who use equipment for tasks like looking for a body retrieving a murder weapon various recovery needs may not be safe to send a diver down. The second part of the grant for the Port of Muskegon, that comes from the Homeland Security's Port Grant Program, this summer Muskegon County received a high-speed interceptor boat and ordered a second larger boat. The boats will give law enforcement the ability to get water emergencies quicker, get to the water emergencies quicker, as the same grant fund by different caliber of grant. The more recent grant was a large award to the county that didn't bank on receiving it. Muskegon's County Grant Coordinator Judy Kell said the government agency recently changed the way it classified classified sports and awards money. We were complete, competing with Chicago and for a lesser pot of money, so I was very grateful that we were able to get the money. It was a good day. It comes as somewhat of a surprise, Rosalier said. We put in for it and we thought there was a lot. It was kind of a long shot.
1: Well, you know, Muskegon is the. Uh... A true hotbed target for terrorist <laughs> activities. So
0: yeah, I saw the Geiger counter on there.
1: That's one fancy ass. Uh,
0: well, that's the uh, thing.
1: Underwater, you know, uh, what what am I wanting to say? The uh, open ROV.
0: Yeah, well, I Add looked all at all that, that
1: stuff to open ROV. Man, you could definitely spend some money yeah, on it.
0: We've got an article coming up on open ROV, but it's amazing how everything that is paid for with a grant costs a lot more than it would normally. Yeah, you know side skins and a Geiger, a Geiger counter. You know the Geiger, three hundred seventy-two thousand dollars. So well, it's got to work underwater. Yeah, underwater well, counter. So I think what the, what part of this is a press release? So they're trying to talk up the things that people they'll think people will value. You got funds for deputies, so you got to figure that's got to be and how many years? It doesn't say how many years it's funding for. So you got a deputy and a police dog in there. Dive team equipment. I mean, that could be quite a bit of money depending on what kind of equipment they're getting. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, it's one of those things you kind of get torn. There's nothing free, there's no free handouts. And I know the county that I live in, we get a lot of grant money that goes into similar situations. You know, we've got two nuclear plants and, you know, a major U.S. highway that goes right through the mini, middle of the county. So we tend to be able to get those grants fairly easy. But I just hope that the if if these things are getting used properly and they're a value, that's fine. But I just hope that it's just not across the whole nation, just this big handing out of money. And we dropped Jim again. Oh my gosh, looking at the chat room is scaring me. I'm back again. You're back. Yeah, where'd you lose me at? I think we were just getting. I was just getting done on my rant on government grant money.
1: Oh, well I was just saying. I, I was going to say that I've got a. Uh new approach to writing grants for scuba gear. What's and that? And that is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, instead of buying scuba gear, open circuit, I'm going to write everything for closed circuit rebreather so that we don't have the environmental impact of all the exhaled gases
0: polluting the water. We, won't, we Yeah. Or we're scrubbing. Right. Hmm. Yeah, maybe I can get a grant. See, grants are okay if I get it. Next one, In the, under the conspiracy column, Atlantis Discovered New Mysteries Underwater Pyramid is found near Azores Island. We're going to call him uh, Mr. Smith has discovered based on a batmosphere, a bat, a, oh, underwater scanning readings, a 60-meter high and 8,000-meter wide underwater pyramid near Bank de Castro. And that's an abbreviation, so you're never going to find it by doing that. There's too many Spanish names in here. The Mysterious Building is around 40 meters below water, lined with four cardinal directions of the compass, similar to the Great Pyramids of Giza. The discoverer doesn't believe the pyramid is of natural origin. Matters already being investigated with the with the support of the Portuguese navy. Legends of an advanced prehistoric civilization known as Atlantis have been around since the beginning of history, but previously those who have searched for it were, were divided on whether or not it was located near this location or somewhere else. As far back as Plato suggested that the original builders of the pyramids Lived in West Gibraltar, but finding uh, Machu Picchu and other curiosities in the Mediterranean led people to believe that was underside of the Atlantic. Now, if you take a look, uh, that sonar scan—if that's a true sonar scan—that is kind of compelling. Just makes me wonder if. Can you get that type of pyramid shape naturally? Well, if
1: it's 40 meters, they ought to be able to get some divers on it and
0: find out. That's what they do. Well, if they've got the support of the Navy, they should be able to. It said charts appeared between 1351 and 1439 to several groupings of island of various names. The first associated between the modern islands and these stories in the way in the island of Brazil, which first appeared in a Venetian map of Andrea Bianca, 1436. So, huh, interesting. Yeah, like you said, it's easy to talk about, but they just need to get some video cameras down there. That will end up pretty quick. Looking at that computer screen, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of straight lines. So this could be a case of, it's just how the software displays it. It's not nearly as uh, sharp shaped as what that image is showing. Okay. Well, the next one. We may, oh, I think we lost him again. So I think I've got a good connection tonight. Hopefully, everybody in the chat room can hear me. This one is the famous pirate ship emerges piece by piece. We've covered this one before. They're working hard at the underwater grave of the 18th century shipwreck. This is a delicate operation. They're working on artifacts in an area colloquially named The Pile, concentration of objects that consist of a an large anchor lying in seven cannon, other artifacts, natural encrustation that built up over 300 years, the wreckage of the famous Blackbeard's flagship Queen Anne Revenge, just off the coast near Beaufort, North Carolina. The immense amount of iron-concentrated areas provided a host of nutrients for sea life, which has turned encourage the encrustation. To date, there are more than 280,000 artifacts that have been recovered since serious exploration began in 1996, including at least 15 cannon, ship's timbers, two anchors, pewterware, flatware, medical instruments, gun parts, cannon shot, gold grains, glass wine bottles, and ceramic pieces. And the pile is the focus of their current efforts. Many of these finds were recovered together in groups that form crustaceans, hardened conglomerations of sand, shell, and coral, which begin to build up, especially around iron objects, after they're deposited on the seabed in 1718. Over 2,500 concentrations have been recovered, each one containing a multitude of artifacts ranging from glass beads to rigging elements and cannonballs. So did I paste this in the chat room? I'll do it again. Kind of already mentally on vacation. Tomorrow's a train ride. Now, if you look at that photo halfway down, you can see an encrustation, and that is either something that needs to be slowly picked apart or shot a penicillin.
1: Well, you look at the fizz they've got on that thing.
0: Unbelievable, does not it?
1: Mm.
0: That was a nice shot. They had that fish floating right by in front of them. But then look at that cluster, everything in there. Now, it's a grenade. Now, is a grenade like we think of a grenade, or is that just something you would throw in the cannon shot?
1: Uh, Depending on how old it is. It's a grenade would be it's a
0: timed
1: uh projectile,
0: okay, so however that projectile got there, just when it got there it could go off, yeah,
1: so you'd have a fuse like a fuse on the ball, and you'd shoot it, and then it the explosion or firing out of the cannon would light the ball and away it would go.
0: Archaeologists are saying this phase of excavation began in early August and expected to last for about three months. We are always most hopeful to find an actual wooden structure of the hull to ship beneath what we can now see and working continuously around the pile. It is very promising the hull remains may have been protected by a cannon laying on top. Hopefully we'll also have an opportunity to raise two cannon, two large cast hoop concentrations, which the uncooperative June weather prevented us from collecting. Very cool. Yeah. Okay, that does it for the straight-up articles. We do have a you, you photo. Get,
1: you skipped that. one.
0: I probably skipped more than one. Which one did I skip?
1: You skipped one about a uh, submarine suddenly appearing in Milan. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah we have to talk about the submarine. very interesting article. Yeah. Wow. one right, right by that one. So here we go. We'll catch up on that one. How would you like to see one of these come up in the middle of your street? And it looks like it could have happened. A U.S. insurance company put a duck in the New York City subway station. Yesterday, an Italian insurance company took things a few steps further, creating a massive submarine that appeared to emerge from underneath an old Milan street. And if you look at these photos, it literally looks like the submarine is poking up through the, seat, the street. The Florida. ad agency, M&C Sachi Milano, executed a submarine intervention for the insurance company, Europe Assistance Italia, as part of a protect your life campaign. Disaster scene was brought to life by a group of actors, some dressed as disoriented sailors and scuba divers, others as members of a hospital crew. I'm sorry Jim, I spoke over you. No. But that is that is cool. Yeah, that really is a neat stunt. I want to see the scuba divers. Do they show them in here at all? Uh, I
1: didn't see them, but I didn't go through the whole article trying to keep the bandwidth down. Huh. Okay, we're done with the news now. Can we get into diving, please, please? Uh
0: Almost, almost. we got some uh, cool gear. We'll skip by it. Uh, We'll skip that first one. That's just a press release for a new Chris Craft boat, which I'd be drooling over on my my short list. This next one is OpenROV Project. The OpenROV Project has begun shipping a version 2.5 of its Linux-based underwater robot kit, which you're saying is retailing for $849. The open-source ROV 2.5 design advances a 1 gigabit gigahertz BeagleBone Black SBC scraps the earlier BeagleBone Cape in favor of the faster Adreno-compatible controller board design and boosts improvements of buoyancy, durability, speed, and battery life. It has been over a year since the project successfully was funded as a Kickstarter campaign, but only a few hundred kits have been sold to date. Now the much-improved version 2.5 available in a recent investment of 1.3 million led by True Ventures, the project appears to be ready to expand. So Jim, I think we've got to look at this and take the bits and pieces because it's you get the you get the bugs kind of being worked out and then some refinement. Look at that, they got some uh, nice photos. Did I paint? did I do this in a chat room?
1: yeah, yeah okay. Oh, I don't know wait a minute I was just pulling it off for your your notes
0: yeah I did it's, I did give it it's so an
1: channel. interesting project. I noticed they've mounted a uh, GoPro on it
0: um well they got a GoPro and then they've got another one which I saw was they were, originally they were using i think it was a Microsoft HD camera
1: yeah they had an internal camera and now they've got an external so
0: I think I'm you know
1: it's an interesting design but I really would like to stick with the PVC type design, make it a little bit larger, and what I believe would be a little more controllable. Mm-hmm.
0: I do like their con- their controller board approach.
1: Yeah, they that... just got to integrate it into a joystick because this has only got three. Well, yeah, it's three axis. Everything's three axis, but three three blowers, three fans.
0: Yeah, they they've got. I've seen them do a variety of controllers where they've actually run the controllers through uh, call it web apps. Uh, you know, iPads and iPhones and such.
1: Yeah, I was thinking more of a dual dual joystick controller, two joysticks. So you'd have forward, reverse, true, left, and right. So, you know, you could nose into a wreck and then go left or right without having to pivot and then up, down, and tilt.
0: And what could you do with that ROV?
1: Uh, basically with that type of maneuverability, you could photograph from multiple angles and you could, uh, do some lifting and manipulating. You could do some pickup with it along with sampling and photography.
0: I bet you could also take pictures of Cookie Monster.
1: You probably could if you could go to where Cookie Monster
0: is. Well, according to this next article out of the Daily Mail, Cookie Monster lives under the sea. So, uh... It's a stovepipe sponge, which is found in the warm Caribbean waters, and it just happens to look like Cookie Monster.
1: Mm.
0: It says, I came across the unusual sponge configuration during a shoot in the western tip of Curico. It was clear, and unusually comical sponge, as opposed that no one had ever photographed it before. I lit it from the top and the side to create a more human-like appearance, and voila. So, okay, that does it. Now we can start talking about diving? We can talk about diving. See, Darren,
1: you, did you do any diving this past week? I actually did
0: get a chance to do some diving.
1: Really? Tell us about it. I'm a terrible street man.
0: <laughs> it's it, it, Good enough. Everybody gets a point. So if you've been following us at all, you knew and then we, that we were going to go and get a chance to head over to the east side of the state and try out some rebreathers. So we had an opportunity to do that. We visited with... Steve Philipson and Steve Lewis was there. They're asking if we found Tracy's mask. I didn't. I don't think we found any any masks
1: while we were there. We had a hard time finding the bottom.
0: <laughs> I don't know. They they warned us. Uh, we got there. Well, we got there Friday night, and there were there was that the what shop was that? Jim, I'm terrible with shop names. Uh, Aquatic Adventures. So Aquatic Adventures. We got to Aquatic Adventures, and they had two speakers that started off. We had Steve Lewis. Which he he had a good one talking about some of the basics of the rebreather, and then we had Steve Lewis talking about his his book, which was very interesting. I think if you get a chance to pick it up, you should. Uh, but while we were, but uh, we want to hear about the diving, which we did the next day. Uh, what park was that? God, I'm so unorganized. I'm.
1: Uh, was can the, you get jet
0: lag on a train?
1: <laughs> well, just traveling will do it to you. It was the state park in in just outside of Brighton.
0: So it was, an, it was an. I thought that was a nice park. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of jealous that we don't nice have park. something like that right next door to us, or maybe we do. Maybe we're just not being forceful enough. We'll make one.
1: Island Lake State Park. Thank you, Steve.
0: Island Lake, uh, but that was, that's a nice facility, and you can tell because there were well at least three dive shops there when we were there. Yeah, we, there we, was, we staked out the good spot.
1: Yeah, Steve we was able to. We had the nice spot, but unfortunately, the other, the basic class got to the same. <laughs> uh, platform we were intending to use and they got there before we did. Yes.
0: So there was a variety right. of divers who signed up for the re- goodness, rebreather courses. Like I think of it as a try and dive for rebreathers. So we had two units that were there. We had the Poseidon rebreather and the ambient pressure rebreather. So first one we tried was the Poseidon rebreather. Um, yeah Poseidon sport uh sport
1: rebreather not a yeah. not a technical diver deep diving rebreather at this point mm-hmm. but uh a, a, what I would call a plug and play system
0: yes very you didn't have a lot that you had to worry about very automated very straightforward uh using Car- the canister system cartridge type system cartridge desiccant yeah for the scrubber media um uh, I mean, the thing that's amazing about it's just the size. It's very compact, very put together. Um, if I didn't, if it wasn't for the fact that I needed 22 pounds on my integrated weights to get down, it would be it'd be light carrying it into the water. Still lighter than a set of doubles, that's for damn sure. Yeah, I, I believe you on that one. I'll go with you on that. So that was the first one that we went in into the and water. A, that was a Poseidon Mark Six. Poseidon Mark Six, thank you, Steve. And we went down and we got on the platform. You know, we swam out there. Uh, And they warned us in advance that buoyancy was going to be a little bit of a challenge. And they're not underestimating that. I mean, it's not terrible. I think sometimes when people talk about it, you kind of go from one extreme to another. It's either real simple or real difficult. And this is just a challenge. It's kind of like where you were in diving before you learned your buoyancy. And knowing about buoyancy doesn't give you that much benefit in the beginning because a lot of the tricks that you've developed and learned – aren't going to apply. And Jim's dropped again. Come on, Jim. Come back. There you are. Sorry. No problem. We'll, well, of course, we'll edit that out. See, where were we? Oh, we we got down to the platform. Did we get down to the platform? Yeah, we got down to the platform. Yeah, so we buoy- to the platform. Well, I was talking about buoyancy. Yeah, went to the platform, got squared away
1: on the, the basics with... Uh... Tom, right?
0: Yep, Tom. So he, he he led us around. So we did probably two or three laps around the platform just to kind of get it. So like the trick where you take another breath in and you go up and you breathe out and you can go down, it doesn't work that way.
1: Not in a rebreather, not with a counter lung because yeah. when you exhale, it doesn't make bubbles. It yeah. gives you air for your next breath.
0: Yeah, and you and if you want to get a little bit of air out of the loop because you have a counter lung that's, that you're breathing uh, you're exhaling into and then breathing out of. Uh, some, you know, one of the techniques was to blow out through our noses or let it go out around the regulator mouthpiece. But you still have to think about it. So it was just a lot of mental energy. And then we we went out to uh, what they call that the bathtub, which I think yes is, it would be like a Converse, uh communication box. I'm guessing is how somebody probably originally thought of using it.
1: Yeah, because it was a floating bathtub filled with air. It was a baby's bathtub or a small bathtub.
0: So when we, we got out there, and the visibility at this point, because when we were on the platform, I had to stay pretty much off the platform because there's a lot of uh, new divers who were, I don't know if you call them dive bobbing us, but it seemed like there was always somebody standing on my fin or landing on you. So we, I think we did, that was a motivation for exploring a little bit out of way. So we got to that bathtub, and then he signaled to kind of go around it. And I guess he wasn't signaling to go around it, but that's what I thought. And I went around it, and I came back. I couldn't find you. So after about 30 seconds of being underwater, uh, I surfaced so that we could regroup, and then we headed back to the platform. Now, what was your thoughts on the Poseidon?
1: Um, It's not the device that I'm looking for, because I want to go a little deeper than that does and would like to have the ability for manual injection or for override Mm -hmm. Uh, Poseidon as I say is it to me it's a plug and play it's just uh, put it on breathe it for five minutes and go do your sport depth dive so if you wanted to have extended bottom time um, little or no deco um, you know wanted to do uh, Caribbean diving, you know, where you didn't have bubbles and really wanted to get into photography with fish and ambient light and you know things like that, it would be a great, um, great device for that. You know, uh, sounds like they're going to have plenty of you know dealers available and a network of um, places where you can get your, your canisters. Um, very simple, straightforward design, you know, it's, it's a kind of a breathe it and forget it. And then when you get done, you know, the maintenance is less to some extent than if you've got to repack your own cartridge and containers and things like that. So, um, you know, nice toy, uh, if you've got the disposable income to, to play with it.
0: Yeah. I I think the, the market for that unit is if you're a recreational, Level diver, you're, you're not going to ever be doing tech diving. I understand that they that they that they're coming that they have a, a tech upgrade for it, but it, it seems to be more aimed at the the turnkey plug and play type of rebreather market where you're going to be doing it more in recreational depths. So if you're like going to be into photography, you know, if you're into warm water diving, uh, I, I think it was an excellent unit. But I, I agree with you with the type of diving that we're doing and or at least us. I don't necessarily say our area cuz there's a lot of people that are going to stay recreational but if you uh, I think if you're going to be more technical diving then the second unit we tried is probably a little bit better fit.
1: Yeah, I would definitely agree. Uh the AP unit which is the uh Evolution and I want to say in, inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um I really liked a lot of the features of that, those units, uh, you've, you know, there's two sizes. So a short person like me could get a smaller, more compact unit. Uh, it's got some nice configurations with the yellow box or yellow housing, or you could go with a tech housing like Steve Lewis, our our instructor had The tech housing gives you more flexibility for different size bottles. Um, and uh, different configuration where uh, bulk of the housing is different, so you can, you know, move things around, uh, move around in it differently. I really liked it. Uh, integrated back, you can have back lungs or front over the shoulder front lung counter lungs. So, once you've experimented with different ones and you know your style, you can kind of, kind of customize the unit to that. Uh, it's Highly automatic you can do it on full automatic or you can what I really like about is it's got manual overrides so you know if you uh, um, Need to change your ppo2 you can manually add oxygen uh, Or you can manually add diluent diluent I'm sorry and flush the system, so it's it's got a lot of uh, good redundancy Um, you know probably very little I didn't like about it, except for the price.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, so let's kind of do a comparison between the two. You had, and we're only comparing these two because these are the two we got to try. So this is by no means all the rebreathers that are out there. But uh, you had two approaches. One, you had the canister, where you had the scrubber media in the, in the canister. And then the other was uh, where you packed your own. And I have to say that I'm kind of drawn to the pack my own type of it. Type yeah, I am also. I am yeah. also and and I, and I don't know why I think from a convenience standpoint, the canister probably is a little bit easier, but there's just i just I just liked uh, that that some of the the features of that the, like they had the stick the thermal stick the yeah was just a comment
1: on that the the yeah. thermal stick in the middle of the catalyst uh, so you could see um, visually through the display that you're your agent is working, your scrubber is working, and how how hard it is working and how
0: hot it's getting. Yeah, and and then you so, know, because cause they talk about that you've got, you know, what do you say for the media? Was it three hours?
1: Yeah, three hours is what they're saying. You know, three hours is the advertised limit or adverti- recommended advertised use time.
0: But by but, having that, that stick, you can actually see where in your media bed you actually have it active. Yeah. So if for some reason you had a less than optimum pack, you know maybe the material wasn't quite up to snuff, you, you that might be an indication from that temperature probe or if you were getting an exceptionally long amount of, of time you would you could yeah. potentially see it the same way. So just some more data that you have to work with. So I thought that was and that's an exclusive I believe to AP's unit.
1: Yeah, I believe it was because I yeah. I believe he did say that was a patented pro or patented design on, you know, the stick. So that's that was really nice. But the only thing the units did not have that I wish they would have had, uh, and it's probably available. I think I think it is available as an option, is a CO2 monitor.
0: I think that's starting to come. I know that the AP unit had a spot for it, but yeah, uh, I I don't think I think we're still early in that level of technology in the rebreathers that we're not quite seeing that yet.
1: Well, I know in the medical field, you know, there's no, I'm not aware of any electronic CO2 monitors. What they use are basically chemical sticks like litmus paper Mm -hmm. that changes color based on the amount of CO2. So the technology may not be there yet to fully support CO2 monitoring like you have oxygen monitors. But, you know, to me, that's probably the next generation or next major step in rebreather. And yeah. when you get that there, you know, you think about you're, you're monitoring your oxygen. Uh, the, re-breather, the whole rebreather is based off of controlling your oxygen level. And talking to Bob and some other people who dive rebreathers, the one thing they have a concern for is out-breathing the scrubber. You know, it's going to give you plenty of oxygen, but is it taking out the enough carbon dioxide out of your exhaled air to keep your carbon dioxide levels low enough that you don't build up too much carbon dioxide in your systems. So being able to monitor the carbon dioxide, you know, to me that's the the second safety level that gives you the whole picture uh, when you're when you're done.
0: What were some of the other differences between the units? So we talked about the canisters. Uh, the computers were were fairly similar. I mean, they they they're doing an automated setup. It's walked you through most of the steps, you know, including the the pre-breathing. Um, again, I think I I liked the AP uh, display just a, a little bit better. Maybe the Poseidon was so automated that I felt like I should be doing something. The ambient pressure unit was beeping at me enough, so I got I got to play a little bit around more with the display because I had to turn off because we had a, a low battery on one of the one of the sensors. Um, so I thought the computer was nice. I also felt that the, and this is probably a, an option, uh, it felt like the Poseidon counter lung volume was about equivalent to my normal breathing. So when we were on the surface, that was a little bit disconcerting to have it when you would breathe out. Uh, some of it would would vent out of the, the loop because you didn't have the, the you know, the, the pressure, ga- not the pressure gauge, but the setting on that counter lung, so the overpressure was a little bit lower once you got in the water, it was fine, so i 'll just say that to human error my my uh, knowledge of the unit and use of it because we are borrowing these units for the day uh, let's see the mouthpiece uh, I think they were they were both pretty similar uh the heads up display was uh about the same you know again, I just felt all across the board I like that apply ambient pressure rebreather just a little bit better now, both the rebreathers I noticed in the water that I felt more streamlined than I do with tanks. Yeah, there seemed to
1: be less resistance when swimming. Yeah. Uh, uh, the one thing that, you know, I, I was a bit different was the constraining of the double hoses, you know, with head movement. I couldn't turn my head and move my head as much as I can with a, just a single hose regulator.
0: Yeah, that's true. I, I did notice that you had to look a little bit up or over it, and I think on both units that was something that was adjustable. So if it was our unit that we had owned then you would be able to uh you know get, get the hose and the trim i mean cuz like my trim was was and that's something that would come with time i just didn't feel like i was trimmed yeah as well I was as i a am lot, normal
1: i was a lot better trimmed on the second dive than i was the first i really struggled with trim on that first dive.
0: yeah i agree um so, let's see what else. So we did this. so let's talk about that second. Oh, I lost Jim again. Can you is talk shoe coming at all? Ah, welcome back.
1: Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I've shut down everything except Skype.
0: okay they're saying in the chat room they have sound, they don't have sound, they have sound. I think it's just uh talk shoes. Having a little bit of a fit tonight. I've actually got a pretty, feel like a pretty good connection here at the hotel room. So where were we? We were back on, uh, oh, okay, that's it. Going to hunt down the, all Jim's neighbors, tell him to get off the internet. See, Roger, that, that's what I appreciate. You haven't lost a connection. <laughs> now we'll get Jim back here in a second. In the meantime, if you want to get a chance, I'm posting photos from the weekend up on the scuba obsessed fake facebook page i'll also do a post on the website but who knows when that's going to happen it might be sunday before i can get to it we'll we'll talk about some of my travel i'm back you're back one more time one more time We'll, we'll, we'll get there i want to thank everybody for hanging on i'm i'm going to do some editing but i'm not going to post all these out so you just keep it now you might want to do this i should maybe i should edit this at the beginning you can do this as a drinking game so every time we drop connection you have to take a drink but make sure you don't need to go anywhere for the next twelve hours. <laughs> yes, yeah. you're, you're going to have some fun. Uh, It'll
1: sure make the end of the show a lot more enjoyable. Yeah, the
0: joke is funnier when when you've had a, a few. I don't talk any better with a few. I think I talk better without. That's maybe part of my problem.
1: But I will say that though the the diving this weekend was great. It was a great experience to spend some time with uh, Big Stig. Steve Phillipson and a true pleasure to get to meet uh, Steve Lewis and uh, learn from him and uh, see his style of teaching style of reinforcement and uh, just his knowledge uh, on rebreathers and other sub- subjects. I would you know, look forward to getting any opportunity to spend more time with him. He's uh, if,
0: if you amazing ever see individual. if you ever see Steve Lewis come up on a conference a tour a class it is well worth it. I mean, just an uh, amazing trainer. And, and this is, you know, there's a lot of people in this dive industry who are blowhards, which you could include me in. Uh, but he, he truly is a, is a gentleman diver. I mean, he he, he, he's not, he's not in it to blow smoke or to brag about himself. In fact, I think he's probably understated for his skills. I mean, just over the course of the, of the lectures he gave. And then we, we had the opportunity to spend some time with him. And, you know, I I need about two weeks just to go and hear more of his stories. Yeah. Uh, Just all the different diving, the experiences. And I, and I, I, I like to listen to everybody's story. So when I'm with you, I want to hear those stories, whether you think they're stupid or silly or not, because there's a lot you can learn from them. And then there's, it's part of the social aspect of diving is getting with the fellow divers and, and listening uh, to the experiences that they've had, because you can learn from it, <laughs> both positive and negative. I could learn what to do and what not to do. But Steve, I mean, definitely a, a, a world of knowledge, and he understands that rebreather inside and out. So we went through. It's not a full course because we were just doing a basically the rebreather version of a try and dive. But he gave you enough confidence in the units that you could that you could dive them for the limited time we had. So it felt yeah. like we had a lot of time on the rebreathers. We had, what, 30 minutes on the Poseidon? Oh, about probably, that, yeah. And probably about 40 minutes on the ambient pressure.
1: Yeah, I would say so.
0: And, and it yeah. felt like a lot longer than that because you're, you're just, your mind's racing in, in overdrive trying to get the, the whole buoyancy thing. So, yeah. uh, you know, we, we listened to Steve do the lecture before we did the Poseidon. We dove the Poseidon, and then we came back, and then we dove with Steve on the ambient pressure. Uh, And we stuck to the platform. We had learned uh, the visibility was just getting too low with as many students that were in the water and just the conditions. Uh, I would say visibility was five to seven feet. You couldn't see across the platform, but you could see halfway through the platform.
1: Yep, yep, Skype message.
0: Oh, do you have the video out there, Jim?
1: Uh, yeah, the one that I, the link that I sent to you, I can dig it up. Well, I'll have to go back on my computer and dig it up. But I sent it to you.
0: Oh, no, I didn't. I somehow must have missed that. So, yeah, yeah we'll it, go ahead and we'll we'll post that uh, so that everybody can can view the video. Uh, I've also posted photos. I posted the ones above water. And now I've got, and I've got screen captures. So I'm going to do that right now as we're talking about it. Uh, and we dropped Jim. <laughs> so everybody's got to take a drink. And these photos are, are, these are raw photos. Now, Jim on that video, and he's still not back. See, we've got some projects we want to do with video, but we we don't want to be perfect, but we want to be better than we are right now. So uh, taking the opportunity with all this video that we've been recording to figure out how to do some color balance. <laughs> Roger, your glass is dry now. Three drinks whenever Darren says edit. <laughs> you back, Jim?
1: I'm back again. No drink. <laughs> That is a a short video I put together of the Scuba Obsessed Stealth Dive Team.
0: So on that second dive, we we dove around the platform. Like we said, the visibility was five to to seven feet. And because we'd already dove the Poseidon, I don't think we had quite as much of a lead time to getting uh, the buoyancy going. Now, because I had to navigate the beeping, I did earn a fist bump underwater, which I think is a first for me. I don't know. uh, Does that mean I was a novice that I hadn't earned one before? I mean, a I fist bump's better than a fist in the face.
1: I don't think you had dove with an instructor that uses that reinforcement style prior.
0: Okay, so I I felt privileged on that, uh, and and I did capture the moment, which you can see on the on the the website. So we we dove around the platform and we we did circles, and I I was trying to because Steve wanted to be able to see both of us at the same time, and that's one reason why we stayed in the platform. If we had gotten off the platform and dove in the rest of the lake. We'd have been lost. So we wanted to keep both divers in his field of view. And then we had both both Steves, Steve Phillips and Steve Lewis, who were guiding us, making sure that we weren't doing anything too crazy. And everybody's got a drink because we just lost Jim again. Squirrels must be messing with that internet. So I'll take a moment. I've I've added photos and I've added a ton of them. So make sure you get some time. You head over to the Scuba Obsessed Facebook page, which is Facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed. And there's got to be about 70 photos on there. Yeah, at least 70, if not more. <laughs> Dave's drink, saying it does get better the more drinks he has. <laughs> They're saying they can't hear the broadcast from under the table. <laughs> okay, let's add Jim again. <laughs> you picked the wrong year to quit drinking, I guess. Yeah, that will do it. You could do it with iced tea. You're just going to be peeing a lot. All right. Okay. I was afraid I was going to miss the joke. <laughs> no, you, you, we'll keep the joke going. Wow, there's a lot of photos there. So I'll, I'll go back and add some captions. Maybe as I drink, I'll add captions, and they'll get funnier as it, as it goes on. And these, uh, the ones underwater, are still uh, shots from uh, Jim's video. So I'll post a link for that also on Facebook. Uh, so what did you have any tricks that you developed as you were doing the rebreather diving?
1: Yeah. Um, one was breathing out my nose. You know, exhale when you're we, when the lung got full or if I found I wanted to go down, uh, you know, sink a little bit, I would breathe out my nose uh, and hold without taking a breath and I'd start to drop a little bit and then when I would breathe in, it would balance me back off and I'd stop. So that was one. And then the other was... Uh, when the dive was finally over. Did you talk about that at all? No. Yeah, well, when we were ready to finish the dive, uh, they were going to do, a, Steve wanted us to do a, a bottom swim and come up the slope slowly. Well, I was underweighted, so I had to pull myself down the um, marker line to get down to depth before I could maintain buoyancy. And I was concerned that going back up, if I tried to do a free ascent, even though we were at 20 feet, but if I tried to do a free ascent, I was going to outbreathe the, the venting that I could do and would end up popping up from like 10 feet all the way to the surface uncontrolled. So we uh, had Steve leave the line tied off till I made it to the surface. And actually, going up the line, um, I held my DC vent open all the way. Uh, I did forget to change the resistance on the lungs. I keep forgetting the lungs had a, a vent on them where you could set the resistance for bleeding air out of the lungs. But what I did was I uh, exhaled through my nose to basically empty the lungs to as almost as empty as I could get them. And then as I would take a breath in, I could hear the uh, diluent, diluent, I want to say dilutant, the diluent bottle kick in your or valve kick in. So I knew I was getting good air uh, and that I had emptied the lungs enough that it was trying to fill them back up. I had purged the system. And then as I would exhale again, I would exhale through out my nose uh, and then do the same thing. So I basically kept the counter lungs totally empty coming up and
0: I was able to do the ascent very slowly without having to hang on to the line. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That's a good, that's a I mean, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see, and maybe when we get Steve on next time, you know, how much we've said wrong, but uh, that seems to be an interesting approach. Uh, I was surprised uh, coming up, because there's one thing that Steve did when we were down there, is he flushed the system, which caused the whole loop to fill with air. So he he warned us on the surface that he was going to do this, and part of that was to... So you could watch the con- the controls and see that the PPO was rising, but then also so that you could learn to adjust and have a technique for dealing with that. Because there could be situations where uh, the oxygen level is getting low and that's happening and you need to be able to account for it. So in, in that case, what he wanted us to do was like either breathe out through our, nou- our nose or breathe out through the regulator uh, around, around the mouthpiece. Uh, yeah, I found that,
1: it difficult to breathe out around the mouthpiece because the mouthpiece was so large. So I just got in the habit of breathing out my nose.
0: You know what was funny is there were situations where that was natural to me, and it seemed like I could do two breaths, and then the third I had to breathe out through the mask. So I don't know if it was because the loop lost pressure with the first two breaths, you know, and it's probably just a muscle memory technique type of thing that will eventually come with time. Because I'm I'm not a big fan of breathing out through the masks. So you new divers, if you're breathing out through your mask, that, that's a leading way to get it to fog.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. That was one thing I did notice was by the end of the dive, my mask was
0: fogging. Yeah. So if you can breathe out around the around the mouthpiece, that seems to be a much better option. But as uh, Steve Lewis and I were, were coming up, I was impressed at how well I was able to keep my buoyancy by doing that technique. Because you're still dumping a little bit of air, but you've got both the the air in the loop and in your counterlung expanding along with anything that you've put into your BC. So you've got to be purging both of those. And that's, that's kind of the challenge. And then, uh, and we were diving wetsuit. If you're diving a dry suit, then you've got a third volume of air that you're managing. So right. I've, I've heard some people will say that they'll actually dump their, their dry suit air, you know, as much as they can without getting too much of a squeeze, uh, just to make that ascent easier towards well. the end of the dive.
1: I will admit I always make sure that my dry suit dump valve is wide open anytime I'm getting ready to do an ascent. Uh, that's just standard practice for me. And then when I get to about 10 feet, I'll shut it down all the way so that when I finally do hit the surface, I've got enough there to help keep me buoyant and take away any squeezes. But, yeah, it is, it is task loading when you start thinking about, you know, the, the air in the counter lungs and managing that. It's not just breathe and forget. You're, you're monitoring it. But, I now, think, as you dive the unit, get used to the unit and experienced you know it actually says it becomes like muscle memory
0: it does this is just definitely technique because from the beginning of the dives, I mean, we had less than you know fifty minutes was it uh, No, they said fifty minutes, seventy minutes between the two units, uh, you know, add another three or four hours onto it, and yeah. I, I we would be pretty proficient. I mean, you you always learn and it's probably hundreds of hours for you to really get super proficient with the unit. But I felt like we were adapting pretty quickly to it. So uh, I I wouldn't be concerned that it's, that was an insurmountable challenge to figure out how to dive the rebreather and handle the buoyancy, which is, it's one of those things because that's, that's what everybody says whenever you go to the seminars and people talk about rebreathers, it's kind of like they got to make it some Mount Everest to climb and that the buoyancy was not a Mount Everest. It's more of a, you know, the, the hill at the end of the driveway type of thing. So you, you, that that can easily be overcome. Shouldn't, shouldn't scare you from, from trying one. And I recommend if you get a chance. Now, uh, one thing I did notice, and that everybody was exactly right on, was fish coming up to you. And that was from the moment we got in the water. Minnows weren't scared. Fish weren't scared. I imagine if we were diving with other type of aquatic life, it wouldn't be scared. In fact, one of the stills, that we've got is of a trout who insisted to swim right in the middle of us. That that does not yeah. happen.
1: Right between you and I, and we were probably less than well. We were what, maybe four feet apart.
0: Yeah, if that. If
1: that. I mean, yeah. we could have reached out and touched each other. And so. it
0: was, it, and and I saw the fish when it started to swim up to us. And in in the past, it would have been, it would have seen us, heard the bubbles, and gone away. He decided that the path he wanted to take was right between us. And that wasn't the only case of it. Throughout the dive, there was probably. a and this is a pond. This is not like Lake Michigan or large or the ocean where there's tons of aquatic life. This is just a, a regular shallow pond. And
1: there was plenty of stirred up stuff from the bottom all around that platform. So if he was looking for food or in a feeding mode or anything, he would not have been on top of that platform in the clearer water. Yeah. So this was just, you know, cruising along and, you know, here's two big objects I got to cruise between.
0: Exactly. Yeah, no, he 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 didn't mind it at all. So we we came up, we, d- we did the, you, you went up the line, and Steve said that you weren't pulling on the line tough when you came up, so you must have had your buoyancy pretty well under control. And then we came up the shallows. So, you know, not my normal, I mean, I don't think I have awesome buoyancy, but I got pretty solid buoyancy. So not as good as normal, but I, I was respectable. I didn't, there's only twice I rocketed to the surface, and that was the beginning of both of the dives where uh you know the kind of the adjustments went one way or the other but uh uh the the units performed we came out yeah we lived to tell <laughs> about it
1: you know I was thinking about the task loading and taking the tech class or the intro to tech class that I've been going through with dealing with you know uh, carrying carrying a deco bottle and carrying or having possibly hanging a, another deco or stage bottle um you think about the, the task loading of switching gases and changing your computer over, and you know possibly shooting a bag in your deco. Um, there's really less task loading with the rebreathers than there was manually diving it. And I think if you were diving side mounts where you're continuously switching regulators back and forth and balancing your pressures, your tank pressures, you know, uh, a rebreather's Probably got equal to or less task loading than side mount diving,
0: yeah, I didn't feel like we we had a lot of task loading, and I was watching the computer much more than I would have on an on another dive, but I think it was just the because I felt like I should I felt yep. like I should be taking a look at you know making sure everything was going, but the the computer was was taking care of most of it it was calculating what your your oxygen uh p p o should be uh, was letting you know about the depths, about the status of the unit, doing all its checks. Which we'll, we'll have another episode where we'll bring Steve or somebody else on, and talk about uh, some of the the different options on it on the individual units. But uh, I didn't feel like there was a lot of task loading, and I think that was kind of a surprise because I know in talking to other rebreather divers that we have dove with. Uh, not that it's, it's insurmountable, but that's something that they're doing all the time. You know, they're, they're counting the, the flashes of the lights and knowing what so many flashes mean and this flash means. And with the computers on, on both of these units, it, that, if there was an alert, it told you what the alert was for.
1: Yeah, I, I like the heads-up display. Uh, you know, two green lights, everything's good. One mm-hmm. red light, you got something you need to look at. Two red lights, you got something you better look at now. Yeah. So you and, know and, it, it was nice. And, and we had, as you said, you know, both of our units were sounding alarms. Um, they told us what the alarms were. We knew what was coming. We knew how to resolve it. You know, we had uh, each of them had a battery that was low uh, after people diving them all day long. You know, the by the time we got to them as the last guys in the day, uh, the battery was was low enough that it was sounding an alarm, but not dead by any means. So it just kept reminding us that, hey, you've got a low battery here. So we just kept muting the alarm, and away we
0: went. Yeah, and I actually I think I have a little bit more confidence for it because we were in known situations where there's alarms, so you got to experience the way the notification was going to happen. Because in my case, is the unit has two batteries. It had an A and a B. And you know if you had been on a boat charter and one of the batteries is alarming, if you didn't have a backup, you would scrub the dive. But in this situation, in a closed environment, you know, we continued on with the dive because we knew what it was. Uh, and just the way it alerted you and the way you cleared it just gave me a lot of confidence that the unit was keeping track because you know, in, in my work in technology, that's a lot of what you're doing is you're, is you're looking for single points of failures, putting redundant systems in, and then coming up with a process of how you handle those failures.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of redundancy in these units.
0: Oh, oh Definitely. And it's, it's redundancy where you need them. Yep. You know, it, 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 one of the, you know, there's a, there's a certain saying where you, you say you keep it simple and that's what they've done. And they add the complexity only when they need to. And then they presented it in a simple way.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a very good experience. I'm looking forward to trying some
0: different units,
1: uh, to see the pros and the cons of, you know, who else has what out there. Yeah. Uh, but from what I've seen so far, the AP units are, you know, in my book, the, uh, what I'm going to call my gold standard that I'm going to measure everything else against.
0: Yeah, the the, the ambient pressure. That's on my on my short list. If I get that uh, bucket of money and I'm buying a rebreather, that's definitely one of them that's going to be considered. And if a isn't isn't out of the hunt, but I think for the where I'm heading and diving, uh, I'm really going that more of uh, that technical route. Yeah. Uh, and some people said they didn't like the case. I mean, I liked Steve's technical rig, but I'd have to say, I think I would go with the uh, plastic, the, the yellow case uh, myself. I like it. I, I like the little bit of protection because we're on boats quite a bit. And if you got that sitting around, because that's why I feel a little bit about Bob's. You know, Bob's got a KISS unit and he's a, the diver, the, the rebreather diver we dive with. And there's times where you're helping Bob in and out of the water or you're pulling his rebreather from the water up into it. And I'm always worried that, you know, what kind of damage are you going to do? And they have that shell. On the unit, maybe to take—I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's not like it's going to take a bullet, but it just—you're not going to use it as a handle in spots that shouldn't be used as a handle accidentally. So I, I like that about the about that unit. It was a, it felt protected?
1: Yeah, I got a good look at uh, Steve Lewis's case, and I really liked his case. Uh, the flexibility that he had with it for tweaking things and uh, just being able to change your bottle size. Uh, yeah, which you know, modified buoyancy. What's nice about it is they're they've provided options. It's yeah. not a you know
0: well, and even between GE, the unit,
1: only one way to do things.
0: Yeah, and even between the units, we saw both the Poseidon and the AP unit is that you had different positions of where the counter lungs. Did you want them over the shoulder? Or did you want them on the back? Uh, what kind of uh, webbing did you want? What type of uh, you know? configuration, including that, you know, made the potential for eventually a back plate. Uh, so there was different spots and then attachments. And, and that's what you kind of like. You you want to be able to tailor the unit to the diving that you've got, both in your style and your comfort and also what is needed for the environment that you're going in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I thought both units were uh, very well suited for that. Uh, yep. So I, I'm, you know, it's like I say, if I'm ready. <laughs> Sign me up. I just now need to get the the bucket of, and I say bucket of money. I mean this this stuff. It's like any other hobby. You know, take a look at what you're what you would be spending for other hobbies. If you're doing demolition derbies, which I got friends who do, or race cars, or dirt bikes, or horses. Uh, you know, I I would say if you what I've got in the horses is probably about ten times what it would cost to get to a rebreather.
1: And the thing with horses is. You can't put it away and walk away from it for a month or so. You've got to feed those horses and clean those stalls every day.
0: That is very true, yeah. You, you walk away from the horses a month, you're going to have skeletons walking in your driveway. So, um, yeah, it's something I look forward to some more experience with. Now, we did all the diving, uh, but almost as good as the diving was the fellowship after the diving. So, uh, again, thanks for Steve Phillipson for putting us up and for Steve Lewis for the stories. And then all the divers over there out of uh, aquatic adventures that we got to meet. Uh, that was awesome to be able to, to, to talk about the experiences that they have with diving.
1: Yeah, it's one of the great things about, uh, well, for us, for me, it's a dive club. You know, hooking up with different divers, whether it be the Great Lakes Wrecking Crew and Internet Club uh, or the Mud Club or, you know, uh, local dive shop and Thursday night or Wednesday night dives. Uh, there's a skew, a load of knowledge out there from other divers and just learning from their experience and talking with them and seeing where they're diving and what they're diving and how they're doing things and sharing, you know, war stories. Uh, that's makes a lot of fun in this. You know, you're not doing things solo. It's uh, there's others out there and you can, share with them and learn from them. And with that said, I, I got a question I want to pose out to the anybody who's listening. What, is, what do you use to keep your mask clear? Uh, I mean, I'll share what I've done is, you know, when I get a new mask, I start off with washing it with soap and water, uh, like a dishwashing soap. And then I usually use a little toothpaste to scrub the inside of the glass uh, with two, toothpaste to get any mold releases and stuff like that off of it. And then I usually put a couple drops of baby shampoo into the mask and smear it around. Uh, so that's that's what I do. And if other people have things that they do, I'd like to hear about it because I've been having a problem with my mask Fogging lately, so I don't know if I've got to build up and it's time to scrub it again with the, you know, start mm-hmm. from scratch. Uh, or, and then as we were talking about with the rebreather, constantly breathing out through the nose uh, and the mask, you know, had a tendency to fog by the end of the dive. So if you could uh, send your comments or your suggestions, Darren, I'll give you the email address and we'd like to hear what you do to keep your mask clear.
0: Yep, and that's at the show. T-H-E-S-H-O-W at com And those will get to us. We read them all. And, and frequently I'll respond to them. So uh, it won't be from that email address. I usually respond from another email address. So if you've got really strict spam blocking, you may not hear the response. So keep an eye out on any of your spam filters. Um, but uh, that, that's a good point. I, I'm, I cheat. I, uh, I tend to use the commercial stuff. And I always say I'm going to go and do the uh, baby shampoo, but even a little tiny one-ounce bottle with as much as I dive seems to last a very long amount of time.
1: That baby shampoo is also great for putting it on your wrist seals uh, uh, before you slide your arms or hands in or a neck seal or, you know, it's great on the back of boots when you go to put your boots on yeah. or the, you know, put it on the inside of the back of the hand for your gloves, yeah. uh, makes getting those, uh, tight fitting accessories over the skin a lot easier. Yeah. And it just rinses right out and does also help to keep the gloves from getting
0: super funky boots and, too. Yeah. And my, uh, my mother-in-law makes homemade soaps. It's something that she's been doing for several years down, and it's amazing the quality of a homemade soap. And I was asking her if she could come up with a formulation that I could use for my masks. I'm thinking, here the show. i got a bunch of listeners. We'll be able to sell this stuff. So I'm my own guinea pig, and I had my mother uh, make some liquid soap. I was kind of excited to try. That stuff about burned my eyeballs out. <laughs> so that is one product we won't be selling. <laughs> I I, I'm I'm lucky I'm not blind. The stuff does good for washing your hands, but you do not want it in your eyes. And I and I think the the trick is the pH balance. Uh, and that was one. I think it took three dives to get that stuff off the mask. It, mm. Even the vapors from it. It was like somebody cut onions in the mask. I mean, wow. I would get tears just putting the mask on.
1: Is that a uh, lie? A lot of times, it makes soap with well, lye. Well, that,
0: that's all soap. I mean, that's a every soap made has to be made with lye. Oh, okay. So if you have somebody who says, "Oh, we don't make the soap with lye," they're either lying, or they're using a sub product to make it, which means that that product was made with lye, but that lye process is over before they go and start their process. So all all soaps are are essentially a, a lye process. If it's if it's a because we, it's just the chemical process. It's one of the earliest form of chemistries that man-made was making soap. Uh, what what your no tear stuff does is your eye has a natural pH, and they adjust the that soap to get to a pH level. And uh, my mother-in-law doesn't have that. It's not one of her steps. So that was not something that was going to be in it. So we're interested in seeing what you use. So does um, that take us to that time? I think we're real close. Do we have anything else that we need to do? Um, you know, again, if you're interested in rebreathers, uh, Steve Phillipson from Aquatic Ad- Adventures, go ahead and give him a call, and he can he can talk you through it. And if it, if it's not where you choose to get it from, at least he'll he'll tell you the pros and cons. I mean, he's going to be a little bit biased. Now, I do agree with him on the rebreathers. One thing he said was a CE certification and working in the you know technical fields and knowing what that certification is. That is definitely a plus in having that in whatever unit you're looking at. Yeah,
1: that's uh, Aquatic Adventures in Brighton, B-R-I-G-H-T-O-N, Michigan. Yep. So you can find them, I'm sure, on the web. And we uh, greatly appreciate Steve hosting us for the weekend and giving us this experience. And yep. you know, if, if there's others out there who would like a little, I won't say free air time because nothing's free, but uh, we dive with you. You invite us in and... Well, we we've got a very small travel budget, so yeah,
0: and you give uh, us
1: a new experience, and we'll talk about it on the show.
0: Yep, yeah, and we're and we're looking forward to that. So if you're a manufacturer of gear or a, an outlet of gear, and you want us to give us a try, we'll we'll give it an honest opinion. But we're going to be forewarned. We're going to talk about it. So uh, pros you know, and there, cons. Yeah. So you know, uh, neither of the Steves uh, told us what we had to say or not had to say. Uh, but being nice helped. I I don't think that hurt. <laughs> I think they're they're both naturally. Great guys, and uh, I would dive with them anytime. You and me both. So look forward to it. We're we're gonna we're gonna dive again soon, hopefully. So yeah, I think we are to that time. I'd like to thank everybody who's listening. the The chat room was a little bit of a challenge tonight. We had a lot of disconnections, so hopefully everybody got their eight shots or drinks of whatever they were drinking in. Uh, appreciate everybody. We had Mark. We had Steve. We had Steve. We had Dave. We had Paul. Uh, let's see who else am I missing. We had uh, Tracy. Uh, and then the multiple people came on their guest account, and then there's some I don't even know. We had some new-time people who came in and, and went out, so we didn't ignore you. Uh, appreciate everybody who came and listened to the program. Fis- appreciate everybody who listens online. We have some of the greatest fans in the world, and we're going to get... I've got to do some work on the website. Cowboys Kids Have No Shoes, as I've said before, so we'll get those websites updated. www.scoobobsessed.com. Follow us on Twitter, at Uh we got a lot of followers on... Twitter, and then the reason they're following us because we do a lot of news stories throughout the week. So, not every day, but but several times a week we have scuba articles. So you follow that feed, and you're going to be able to keep up on all the obscure stuff. As Steve said, I don't know. He he said he didn't know where I got all that stuff. Plus, I got a nickname. So maybe for next week we'll reveal what my nickname was. But what was the nickname? Do you think that Steve Lewis gave me, or said who I looked like? Famous celebrity. So. But that does bring us to that time of the show. And we do have a, a joke. But this one was provided to me by one of our listeners. Well, the guilty shall remain nameless. But uh, it does come from somebody who dives in warm water, warm, clear water. So are you ready? Ready. A couple was Christmas shopping at the mall on Christmas Eve, and the mall was packed. As the wife walked through the mall, she was surprised to look up and see her, her husband was nowhere around. She's quite upset because they had a lot to do. Because she was so worried, she called him on the mobile phone to ask him where he was. In a calm voice, the husband said, honey, you remember the jewelry store we went to about five years ago when you fell in love with that diamond necklace that we could not afford and I told you I would get it for you one day? The wife choked up and started to cry and said, yes, I remember the jewelry store. He said, well, I'm at the dive shore right next to it looking at a new dry suit. that's
1: an appropriate joke for some of the comments we heard at the beginning of the show (laughs) in the chat room and if you don't get a chance to visit the chat room with us on Thursday nights 9 o'clock eastern time you're missing it
0: yeah so until next week go out there and get wet stay safe
1: have fun and try to come up with a better joke for us for next week's show
0: I don't think we heard any rebreathers on the recording of this episode either Completed. wow did we have a we, we outlasted everybody in the chat room <laughs> well
1: i think mark was going to try to hang on for the joke I had to sign off again i uh, my connection was holding so i got back on the other connection and uh, he was hanging in there so i don't know if he's still there or not but i dropped it off good show sorry good for show. all the internet problems no problem so hope you have a safe trip home tomorrow enjoy the train ride
0: yep Yeah, I'm going to get on the train at about 9.55 a.m. I head into Chicago about midday, sit there for four hours for an hour and 45-minute ride to get home at 7.55 p.m. in St. Joe. Mm. So at least I don't have to drive, so it's like being chauffeured around. Yeah. And on the train, you have a lot more legroom than I would if I was flying on a plane. That's true. And uh, you can
1: get up and walk
0: around. You can. There's an observation car. There's a dining car. There's a cafe. Yep. So it's not really a bad experience. But for me, just mentally, I feel like I should be doing stuff. Mm-hmm. And it goes through enough of the rural area that my wireless, I have a, a hotspot. Yeah. And it it couldn't stay connected enough of the time. So about the time I would get caught up on Facebook and other things, and then it would drop. There should be wireless in the train. There was supposed to be. I couldn't even pick up an access point other than my card. Really? Yeah, so I don't know.
1: Might have been a problem with that particular train, but when I traveled before, I had no problem.
0: Yeah, I was looking forward to it because, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm traveling for work. I could have even deducted it. You know, yeah. I would have just charged it
1: for them. Yeah, try the cafe car.
0: Yeah, maybe I'll do that next
1: time. Or the, yeah, the observation. Is that an observation on the top level? It had an observation on the, on the top level.
0: Yeah, I was on a top level. Yeah, uh, that's
1: usually where it's at.
0: And what they're doing is they're working in the lines uh, southwest of Chicago. Mm. And the freight lines, this, this summer, they were at 100% capacity for freight. Mm-hmm. So they're adding another rail. Uh, so in the meantime, it meant that there was a lot of stopping to juggle cars to yep. keep out of those construction. Yep. So that impacted it. So I was about an hour late getting into my destination. But... mm mm-hmm. Uh, You know, I think I would do it again. To me, rail travel would be great for if I'm going from St. Joe to Seattle. In fact, Mm -hmm. maybe we should look at that. Maybe that would be a good uh, dive trip.
1: (laughs) Actually, Randy and I took a trip for our 35th anniversary. Uh, We went out to the Grand Canyon. Okay. And it was, you know, Dwajak to Chicago. Mm -hmm. We had a layover of an hour or two. And then we picked up a train that was headed towards Southern Cal, That was the one Uh,
0: I was on was going to L.A. Yeah.
1: Uh, It had a sleeper car, two sleeper cars, actually. And we got a roommate in the sleeper. And so we were 26 hours, I think, to Winslow, Arizona. Um, Got off in Arizona, uh, rented a car, went to, stayed three or four days there. Uh, Took a bus down to Phoenix and met with some family who took us about an hour south of Phoenix to pick up a train That was going from L.A. to New Orleans. That took us through San Antonio, uh, another 24-hour trip. That was less than 24, but we had a sleeper car there, San Antonio. Um, Got off in San Antonio, spent a day or two there, and then went down to see my sister in Port Mansfield. Came back to San Antonio and got on the train that was headed from New Orleans up to Chicago and did a day ride. I think it was about a day coming from San Antonio up to Chicago. Uh, so, we had the, uh, you know, with, you, with two people, you share that roommate, and it's not bad. Uh, the roomette, uh when you have a roommate or a sleeper, that's considered first class, so all your meals are part of your ticket. So, we're doing like 24 hours on the train. You know, we had three meals and uh, the overnight accommodations, and it was great. Uh, yeah, I'd love to do it. We're planning next year to go out to Alaska. And we're gonna to go to the west coast by train
0: yeah i th- I, I think I would do it the uh, the thing is I just the the time, you know every time the train stopped, I kept thinking, I just was impatient, so yeah,
1: well you can't be in a hurry, no, you know you get there when you get there, and you know it, it's more about the journey than it is the destination, yeah, so okay. All right, you know, I was just going to look and see what the five-day forecast is to see if we can get some diving in this weekend.
0: Well, it sounds like Max got some, and we didn't We didn't talk about that in the show, so it sounds like Max got diving for Saturday planned. Um, um, a river okay. dive, he had a bunch, if you look in the Mud Club site. Okay. He had uh, a bunch of divers I don't know who were asking where a good spot in hmm. Isles to go diving. So okay. I think he's well, on his Mud Club recruiting
1: thing. All right. He and I are going to hit uh, the Big Lake tomorrow. We're going to probably awesome. recover the buoys for the race committee, Saint Joe Yacht Club. We'll float the weights for their float the anchors for their racing buoys. I think we're going to do that tomorrow. And then, if we have time, we may run down either to uh, check out Max Rec and or check out the uh, um, new craters we found down around the chalets. Oh, cool. So that'll be interesting. Saturday they're calling for possibly thunder showers, Sunday, four to five foot waves. So uh, yeah, yeah, not gonna happen Sunday.
0: Yeah, Saturday Thursday I've got Saturday. a chaperone for my wife my wife, my daughter's band, which is noon to midnight. Mm. And then Sunday, I don't know. <laughs> but it may be a couple weeks before I can get a dive in, but Yeah.
1: Well, I'll get with him. I was hoping to catch up to him tonight, firm things up for tomorrow, but I'll give him a call early in the morning. Yeah, and
0: it sounded like he had a uh, play going on.
1: Yeah, I know his daughter's been playing a key part in the play at Twin Cities. Yeah. So, well, I'll see if I can get him in morning because it's 11 o'clock now. Time to go watch the news.
0: Okay. Well, thanks All right. for coming on. We'll talk Thank to you, you later. No problem. Have a good trip. You too. Bye.